0: Hello everybody, and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 37, Genesis versus Exodus. After the world was created and history ignited, Genesis tells us of God's order to a family of mobile herders to move from Mesopotamia to the Levant. Okay, in return for obedience, this God promises said family of mobile herders a piece of land. Over the ensuing generations, the family and its herds grow but the divine promise is not fulfilled. The clan members keep moving from place to place, finding no rest, no safe haven, constantly getting into conflicts with their neighbors and fighting brother against brother. Finally, original calamity forced their hand out of the land they were promised and into Egypt. God makes it clear that Egypt is now the place he's sending them to, to thrive, finally. Once in Egypt, thanks to pharaonic protection, They do thrive and kiss and make up. The end of Genesis. This is the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And we're supposed to believe that the next book (laughs) was written by the same people with serene Egypt immediately becoming intolerable. The noble Pharaoh turning into a mega villain. The prosperous Hebrews are now enslaved and all the effort to get to Egypt is now expanded many times over to escape it. That escalated quickly. I guess a lot happened between Genesis and Exodus. Mm, In more ways than one. In the previous two episodes, we went over how Genesis happened. And in this episode, we'll tie up the loose ends of the first biblical book. Get to some bottom lines and peek ahead to Exodus. Let's start. Hi everybody, I'm Gil. First of all, I would like to thank all the new members who've joined recently in supporting this podcast on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. It's sincerely appreciated and very helpful. There are so many things to go over. I would like to read to you what I think is Baruch ben describing the massive immigration of his people into Egypt. I think it's also worthwhile to look at the character arcs of Genesis's, Genesis's Two star deities, Yahweh and Elohim there's an evolution there and I think it works nicely with the theme of fraternal conflict I want to speculate on which of the stories of Genesis Ben Neria himself wrote in which he probably collected and or edited and then once we have all this in mind I think it's pretty cool to compare the book of Genesis with the next one Exodus and and see how both books reflect contrasting social and political values of the two rival factions we talked so much about that led to the Babylonian sacking of Jerusalem. The pro-independence faction was sent to Babylon. The pro-facts over feelings faction that saw the Babylonians destroying everything in their wake and decided that it's better not to fight them, they settled in Egypt. Both factions got busy and started to write their version of events. Genesis is the version of the ancient history of the people that I feel closer to, you know, reasonable people, and Jeremiah as well. But first, let's take a moment to note one more Genesis theme I want to highlight. The lack of agency of its star characters. Think about it. Abraham is told to go, so he goes. The moment he gets here, (laughs) I'm in Israel, he immediately has to leave to Egypt because of a famine. He doesn't choose to go to Egypt. Then he has to leave that place because the Pharaoh doesn't want him there anymore. And he doesn't feel welcome. So he leaves. And on and on. No agency whatsoever. In Exodus, (laughs) we're going to see loads of agency there from God and Moses. So, the faction that preferred to just get along and then was forced to leave. They produce a book about a family that can't get along. And is forced to leave. While the faction that took its destiny in its own hands. And opted for independence from under foreign yoke. They produce a book about a people trying to get from under foreign yoke. All the pieces just fit so organically. I don't know about you. But I'm fascinated by the massive communal immigration of Hebrews to Egypt. And I was delighted to find an account by Baruch Ben Neriah. Of the occasion (laughs) This is Genesis chapter 46 Symbolically portraying this immigration As Jacob, aka Israel Mm. Moving down south with all his splendor As I'm reading the NIV version Try to paint yourself a picture of this momentous event in biblical history Families, servants, slaves, livestock possessions accumulated over generations they probably left very little behind mind you i'll be skipping the verses that i think are later additions meant to connect this immigration to the coming exodus screw those editors i want to get a sense of the original of how these people described to themselves what had happened to them in the way that they wanted it to be remembered for future generations when Israel hmm? Jacob Israel when Israel set out on his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba that is in the south of Israel south to Jerusalem still existed there as a city he offered sacrifices to the god of his father Isaac God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said Jacob Jacob and he said here I am Then God said I am God the god of your father do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and the goods that they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all of his, ho- and all of his offsprings with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters And his sons and daughters, all of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Then Genesis lists the children uh, of the 12 eponymous characters of the tribes. I think the specific first names are the names of the most important people in each tribe that migrated to Egypt. For example, this is verse 8. Now, these are the names of the Israelites, Jacob's and his offsprings, who came to Egypt. Reuven, Jacob's firstborn, I think. Ben was from the tribe of Reuven. But it's not confirmed yet. It's hard to find information about that. And the children of Reuven. Hanoch. Palu. Hezron. And Carmi. And there's a whole list. These are weird names. These are, these are not biblical names. Or metaphoric names. Just weird names that feel real. And I think it makes the scene very dramatic. Israel is moving south. Everything is symbolic and then bam, real names. It's kind of reminded me of the Israeli movie "Waltz with Bashir. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's an animated anti-war movie about the Israeli war in Lebanon, 1982. And by the end of it, when it shows the carnage, it switches from animation to real footage of mass killings of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon. And the effect of moving from symbolism to realism just like that, that's a very cool dramatic move. So I think this is what Ben Neria was going for here. I think he is describing it, you know, as it actually happened from their perspective. I would imagine that the actual immigration to Egypt was less festive and maybe more gloomy and anxious with dirty and tired people. But in any case, is there anything? In the literary description that I read of the mass immigration to Egypt, that suggests that they are walking into doom? No, those are later editions. Exodus is not part of their tradition. They love Egypt. These people are part of what biblical scholars today call the tradition of the patriarchs. There's the tradition of Exodus. So Genesis has the patriarchs. Exodus has the Exodus. And here we see... These people ending up in Egypt. Those who write in the Babylonian exile happen to write just by accident. How the beloved Egypt of their enemies, in case you didn't know, is the most evil place on earth. So we dove deeply in the past year into the different traits of the two main deities of Genesis, Elohim and Yahweh. With Elohim in Hebrew originally meaning gods, that would go on to be a general word for God and translated as such, and Yahweh became the name we do not mention, and in English it was translated as the Lord. Two ways to refer to the same deity. We badmouthed those two deities <laughs> throughout Genesis, but I feel like I need to repent. <laughs> they do kill indiscriminately from time to time, but the gist of the Genesis gods is that they are sort of a strong power that takes you under their wing. Elohim is more abstract and level-headed, and Yahweh is more of a standard regional deity with a short fuse. They're demanding, but at the end of the day, the gods of Genesis, they have your back. They take care of the family. They made a deal, and they hold their side of the bargain as well. And I think this becomes clearer if we just peek over to Exodus. And look at how they describe Yahweh Elohim. I I didn't dive into this fully yet, but already there seems to be a radical difference. The deities of Exodus are cruel, vindictive. They force people to follow them. There's no deal. And they deliberately create political problems that lead to pain and suffering. Not as an interpretation of the text, but in the text itself. So, you know, if I value honesty and kindness, I will imagine my deity as honest and kind. If I value power and subjugation, hmm, lo and behold, I will conceive my deity as a powerful and domineering. So I think this crystallizes that the gods of Genesis, relative to the other gods of other peoples in the ancient Near East, they're pretty nice. And I might be reading too much into it, But for me, another theme of this book of Genesis is the sets of two. You have a lot of doublets, repetitions. But on top of that, you have two deities, two creation stories, two accounts of the flood, two brothers, over and over and over again. Not three brothers, not four brothers. Two brothers each time, except the tribes. And after it spreads from two people to all these tribes... Then it coalesces around one person, Joseph and his one chosen deity, the general Elohim, not Yahweh. Both Joseph and Elohim in these final chapters of Genesis, they are inclusionary. While previously they couldn't fraternize with the locals and were boasting about their big brother, the big God, who was always making sure nobody was beating up on them. By the end, Elohim to be just fine with all deities. He's cool with the Egyptians. Joseph is cool with the Egyptians. Also his formerly treasonous brothers. Mm. So I don't think it's an accident that literally Yahweh is left behind. And Elohim is in Egypt with them. The gods. So Genesis starts with all these splits between deities and brothers. And it ends with one accepting Hebrew hero. All of the characters together. And one accepting deity, Which is at the same time many deities and one deity Another radical difference between the Egypt of the end of Genesis and the Egypt that we're going to see in a few weeks at the beginning of Exodus is how these books view slavery. Genesis works really hard to normalize slavery. Everybody's a slave to someone. Abraham, he's a slave to Yahweh. Abraham himself has slaves, Jacob has slaves, he has two wives who are slaves, and their children also produce tribes, so that's fine. Joseph is a slave. Pharaonic officials are explicitly called slaves. And it actually says that all the Egyptians are slaves to the Pharaoh. Everybody lived happily ever after as a slave. That wouldn't be of paramount importance if not for the context. The Hebrews just had a political battle within Jerusalem about whether to be free or accept political bondage to the Babylonians. And the political framing was, are you for slavery or for freedom? Genesis is, adam- Genesis is adamantly on the pro-slavery camp and Exodus chooses freedom. So the pro-slavery people write a pro-slavery book that ends well in Egypt. And the anti-slavery people write an anti-slavery book that starts horribly in Egypt. Mm. It seems to me that these two books are communicating with each other. Sniping at each other. They just went through the trauma of the siege of Jerusalem. And it's sacking and burning. And their temple was destroyed. And they were sent to exile in Babylon. Ooh, they now have time to write stories that make their Enemies living in Egypt look bad. And all this brings me to the problematic Jeremiah. Not because of his personal character, but the biblical character of Jeremiah is problematic. His book is problematic. His text and those of the Hebrews in Babylon, they clash on narratives. When it was decided that the book of Jeremiah had to be part of the biblical canon, it had to be edited and re-edited over and over to smooth all the direct contradictions it included. During the research I did on Jeremiah and Baruch ben I found out that there is no other book with more changes <laughs> between its different versions. In the Septuagint translation to, to Greek in the 2nd century BCE, the Dead Sea Scrolls from two centuries later, the Aramaic translations from the 4th century CE, and the Hebrew canon, the book of Jeremiah is the least consistent. As far as I could see. Chapters are added or taken out of the book. Other books are sometimes attached to the book of Jeremiah. Episodes are arranged in a different order. And the language itself changes more frequently than other books. In all those versions. Hmm. When in a few years I will get to the book of Jeremiah, I promise. I look into all these changes and see what's what. The cool thing is that if we follow this logic, it means... We Hebrews use the wrong name for Genesis. And you guys have the right name. (laughs) We call it Bereshit. Which means in the beginning. Those are the first words of the book. But for me it would make sense. That the Septuagint translation. Is the closest version that we have to the original book of Genesis. Because it was translated by the same community in Egypt. The books were passed on from one generation to the next. And eventually translated into Greek. The current Hebrew names of the biblical books. They came much later than the 2nd century BCE. So we need to translate the name Genesis. Back from Greek to Hebrew. To figure out the original name of the book. There are several options. But the most attractive one for me. The Genesis means generations. As in these are the generations of. A format that, that all of the Genesis characters has. It's a family book. With family stories. And loads of generations upon generations. So it fits as the title of the book. In Hebrew that would mean. That the book's name is actually Toldot. Meaning also beginning and our past generation. This is how all these generations are written in Hebrew. Ele Toldot. I know most of you are not Hebrew speakers. So it, not, it might not mean a whole lot to you. But for me. Just thinking about the actual name, the original name for the book being Toldot. Oof, that gives me a tingle. <laughs> Toldot. I like it. In their book of generations, these people mention a lot of holy cities and places. But the one place they glaringly ignore is the place they just left Jerusalem. There's no mention of Jerusalem at all in the entire book. And in the hundreds, Of uncovered letters of the Hebrew community in Egypt. Throughout the centuries. Under pharaonic rule or Hellenistic rule. They don't give a flying whatever about Jerusalem. They don't miss it. Or even mention it's all important temple. They had their own temples in Egypt. Where they prayed to many gods. So about that Jerusalem temple that the Babylonians destroyed. I think the event was retroactively overhyped. And I think that dividing the timeline as first temple period and second temple period, that's a theological division. I would go with a historical division. Yeah, the temple was burned, but that was just part of the destruction of the city, of the last stronghold of what would become the Hebrews and the Jews. So I would call the period before 586 BCE, Jerusalem before the Babylonian sack. Maybe you have a better name. Just the first temple, second temple. I don't like that. What was important in 586 BCE was the end of local rule by the specific local elites. The temple was important to some people, but clearly not to the people of Genesis, the people who went to Egypt. And generally speaking, I might elaborate on this in a future episode. The Genesis-Exodus division has been a staple of the Hebrews and Jews from that time till today. You know, in modern Israel, this is the division between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So, did Baruch ben really write all of the book of Toldot? The fact that almost all of the Genesis stories are mentioned in the book of Jeremiah... That's one reason to think it was all him. On the other hand, there are varying styles. There are tales that seem in different stages of storytelling evolution, of literature evolution. There are wide gaps in quality. And also, it just looks to be too much for just one man. So all of these, and biblical scholarship, (laughs) suggest that there were many pens involved in this project. Let's just speculate a bit here. Given the heavy symbolism of Sodom as Jerusalem in the chapters of Jeremiah that Baruch uh, penned, it makes sense to me that it was ben who wrote that one. That would be one of his earlier stories. The three other Genesis stories that are firmly in the ben column are the Tales of Eleazar the Slave, Jacob in the East, and Joseph. I went over those in the previous episode. And I think all of them were written in Egypt after the sack of Jerusalem, when you had time for such long-winded literature. Two other stories that jump out as having an opposite style of that of ben are The Binding of Isaac, an incredible story, and Jacob's Theft of His Brother's Blessing. Mm. Both of them are very similar. The overt emotions of ben are dialed down from the max all the way down to zero. For me, they were written by the same author, that's a given. An author that uses the same technique of holding back explicit emotions for as long as possible in, in order to let the drama rise within us implicitly. The action in both of these stories is augmented by the minimalistic description of small actions And that only increases the suspense. There's no inner monologues, so we don't know what Abraham or Jacob or anybody is thinking. And we want to know (laughs) what is going through Abraham's head as he's taking his son to slaughter. What is his son thinking? How suspicious is Isaac of his son when Jacob is pretending to be Esau? We don't know. And that's the drama. The scenes feel static. So we become frantic. Mm. And then comes the Ben neria tension release. Mm-mm-mm. The story of Jacob stealing his brother's blessing from their dad. I'll read, the, I'll read the NIV translation, but compared to the original Hebrew, it's just lame. So here, Jacob just pretended to be Esau, got Esau's blessing. As he's going out, at the same time, Esau is coming in. And then his father Isaac said to him, emphasizing the father, this is also in the binding of Isaac, who are you? This is the unsuspecting Esau. I'm your firstborn son, Esau. And then in Hebrew, Vayichared Itzchak Gdola Meod He trembled violently. Okay, no. He I really put some thought into how I could best translate it. I think it's like, he panicked a very big panic. It just like, you know, beautifully. And then he's like, well, okay, so who is the one who just uh, hunted the game and that I ate and that I blessed that person? Who who was that? Esau, <laughs> Aviv. When Esau heard his father's voice, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me also, father. Mm. But the father says, mm, Your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Oy, 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 oy. Mm. So, Jacob stole a blessing that has the root of Baruch, Barach <laughs> penned by Baruch. <laughs> I wonder if he was given, you know, if he was given a task to write a story about Jacob stealing a blessing, which was incidentally the same root, or if he was told to write a story where Jacob, you know, outsmarts his dad and his brother, and he chose to make it about a blessing. So he could put his name in the Bible again. I don't know. So now to the binding of Isaac. This is a truly underrated story. Okay. There's like seven small actions. One after the other. And then the release. Isaac said to his father Abraham. Father. And he said. Here I am my son. He said. The fire and the wood are here. But where is the lamb? For a burnt offering wow, 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 I can already feel the tension inside me, <laughs> Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb for a burnt offering, my son, so the two of them walk together, okay. The action is divided into seven little things Abraham does, preparing to butcher his son <laughs> he came to where he's supposed to go. He built the shrine. Put the uh, wood in order. He tied his son to the wood. Then he puts him on the shrine. The altar, sorry, it's translated as uh, altar. He put him on the altar, on top of the wood. Abraham sends his hand, takes the knife to slaughter his son, and then comes in the angel. Ooh, Angel of Yahweh from the sky. It says, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. And then the very famous line in Hebrew. Al tishlach yadcha el anar. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him. Mm. Because now he knows. That et that you have not spared your only son from me. So, again. Holding tight the emotions, and then letting them explode at the end. For me, this is classic Benaria. Just instead of exploding, also Joseph holding back the emotions until they explode. So it's actually the same style, just depends on how long can he hold back the maximum emotions. So I'm going to put both of those in his column. So that would make it Sodom and Gomorrah, The Binding of Isaac, Basically most of the stories of the patriarchs. I'm going to speculate about that a little bit. I suspect that there was only one patriarch at the beginning, Jacob, and that Abraham and Isaac were later added so that all of the Jacob stories could be spread out over three different characters and that would and that allowed Genesis to incorporate Edomites, Ishmaelites and other peoples who immigrated to Egypt. Those would become in Genesis the descendants of uh, the less favored sons. First of all, the concept of three patriarchs is just odd to me. Shouldn't you have just one patriarch? Which people that we know have three patriarchs? Three fathers? Like, we've gotten used to the idea, but when you think about it, it sounds off. Why would a people need three different patriarchs? Uh, Scholars have speculated that it was meant to connect... The Abrahamic tradition with the Jacobin tradition. But just like, literarily speaking, I've said it before, old Jacob is the same character as old Abraham and old Isaac. Mm. I don't think there was really an Abrahamic tradition. I don't buy that. I think Jacob was a genuine folk hero, eventually put to text, and then more stories were written about him, and then Abraham and Isaac were invented in these texts, just like Joseph. Parts of Noah read to me like Jeremiah's annihilation prophecies of Jerusalem, you know, celebrating the carnage. And Jacob's final rant, disgusting rant against his, against his sons as he's dying. This is the last thing he says to them. I was like, who the fuck wrote that? Ah, this is just monologue, a monologue by Jeremiah. Just insults everybody this is genesis 49 i don't want to even read it it's disgusting so i think the only other story in genesis that we could suspect might be ben eriaz is the first creation story you know i'm a device here that i just want to give him more and more credit uh, for more and more stuff just like the coolness of the of the text kind of reminds me of the binding of isaac and the theft of the of the blessing, on how the suspense grows, but I feel like I might be stretching it. It's probably someone later, after him, maybe using a little bit his style, or maybe him at old age, his final story, I don't know. And I should have looked into that in my research for the previous episode, but I just, it just occurred to me today, as I'm recording this episode, and I will not have time to research it, any deeper that I have today, because the episode is due, and I also, <laughs> also I need a break. I'm very tired. I looked into the status of scribes in Egypt, and it just fit so perfectly with the story of Ben because scribes in Egypt were high officials that were in charge of collecting money and taxes from their surroundings, their village, and they were, and they would send it to the government, to the pharaoh. The pharaonic governments were notoriously very small. As a scribe, coming in as a scribe, he would be the most respected and important person in the community in the eyes of the pharaoh and the pharaonic government. And we have the taxes, the collection of the taxes, we have that in the story of Joseph. This is what Joseph does. So this actually is another clue That Joseph, the successful Joseph, with his new status as the top of the community is Ben Because that would be his position as a scribe in Egypt We're getting closer and closer to saying goodbye to Genesis And goodbye to my dear friend Baruch Ben I know that you've uh, only spent uh, three episodes uh, with him but I spent uh, f- five months <laughs> with this person. Nobody around me can stand to hear anything more about him. <laughs> and it's hard for me to leave him behind. But also, it's good. It's, uh, it's healthy. <laughs> I'm ready to move on to Exodus. It will take a few weeks. I think I think, I think it will start by April. And between now and then, I'll drop some collaborations with other pod with with other people interesting people interesting podcasters maybe a meanwhile in episode something like that i think that the previous two episodes where you have a, a historical story a biblical story and maybe the story behind the story i like that format for the podcast moving forward to have all these timelines and like it wouldn't be at the end of the season just all the information crammed into three episodes, it will be smaller bits throughout throughout the season, like bite-sized uh, episodes of, of what we had these past three episodes. Just one last bit about Baruch ben he, he might have been of Aramaic descent. I didn't know where to put it in all the previous episodes, just because he chose to write Eliezer, his slave from Damascus, which at the time would make him Aramaic. Maybe his father or grandfather moved to Israel from Aram either before or after Assyrians came and just destroyed everything. Ah, So I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast for a whole year and some change. And also I want to thank you personally for listening to just me in the last three episodes. I know it was different, but I think it was fun. I've been told that giving a rating to podcasts really helps to bring in traffic. And I just saw that, to our shame, we have zero ratings on Spotify. So if you want to rectify that, that'll be nice and appreciated. So I'll see you soon. Thank you, everybody. I'm Gil Kidron. Bye.